Hey everyone, welcome to Emmanuel Fellowship's podcast. This is Pastor Trent, the founding pastor of Emmanuel Fellowship, a church in South Minneapolis that exists to serve our city and to live for God's glory. Thanks for tuning into our podcast. We pray that this message encourages you to follow Jesus and to see his presence and power everywhere in your life. Well, over the weekend, I took the big three, uh, my oldest three kids, to the Minnesota Landscape Arboretum. I don't know if you've ever been there, um, but it's it's a, a large area outside, and then there's this incredible old building on the inside, constructed with these massive wood beams and this all this cool architecture. So we we try and make the most of the trip, looking at everything from the facility to the art gallery that they have on the first floor, um, but always. It's the brownies, that's what they really want. Um, Because they have a cafeteria, we'll go get a little snack. Um, And if it's not the brownies, my kids, when they get home, will inevitably talk about the conservatory. So they have, at the, 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 the Arboretum building, this somewhat small greenhouse. And it's, it's as if when you walk through it, maybe perhaps, perhaps you've been to the Como Zoo um, and seen their habitat there or been to another zoo of some kind. And it's like when you walk through the doors, you're immediately transported into a whole different place on the planet. Like it's, it's like through the hallway, all of a sudden we're in a jungle and the kind of place where palm trees can grow and vines are everywhere and tropical plants and cactuses flourish. It's, it's really kind of amazing. Um, and so we wandered around sort of this little square that is the conservatory and brought little colored pencils to draw and um, try and make an afternoon of it. Um, but I got to thinking, I mean, what is it that makes cactus, orchids, um, tropical flowers and palm trees continue to grow. I mean, why is it that all of a sudden there, they can flourish? When the reason that we've come there is because it's like negative 10 degrees outside and like we want a bit of tropical paradise here in Minneapolis or like this weekend, it was like 20 some mile an hour winds and I'm not probably taking them outside to play then, but, but we can go run around in there. What is it about that space that makes for this continual growth, even blossoming of the plants there? Well, I think the simple answer is that inside the greenhouse or in the conservatory, right, the, the environment is right. And the nutrients are there such that a kind of continual, even increasing growth for all of those plants is possible. I mean, if you were to put the cactus out on the sidewalk this last weekend, I don't think it's making it very long. <laughs> like, it's just going to dry up or it's at least going to be damaged. Like, it's not happening. Um, but somehow in there, in the conservatory, where everything that's needed is present, it can flourish and grow. Which makes me wonder, what is it that makes for a gospel greenhouse? What is it that makes for a Christian conservatory? such that a church, such that the people of God continue to grow despite the environment around them that sometimes can be challenging to their own faith. What is it about that environment that makes for not just planting of seeds, but growing up of plants, even fruit bearing of those plants? What makes for a gospel greenhouse where infancy to maturity is possible? 
where ongoing transformation by grace happens. We get Paul's answer today. Paul's answer to a gospel greenhouse is simple. I mean, if you think about it, we should listen, because he is literally, he's the gospel globe trotter, the traveler all around the world, the church planter extraordinaire. He has now probably seen not only his grandparents or his grandchildren in the faith, but maybe even his great-grandchildren or great-great-grandchildren in terms of his legacy. He's planted churches and then raised up others who then planted churches and then Potentially even other generations have come from him. He knows a little bit about what a young church needs in order to grow up. So what is it? What makes for a gospel greenhouse? One thing for Paul. Christ. For him, Christ is all. And to be in Christ is in many ways to be in the conservatory that continues to bring forth fruitful faith. Christ is it. That's, that's all he's asking for because in Christ are all the nutrients needed for growth. In Christ actually is this, this kind of environment that's perfectly set and suited for the ongoing transformation of a plant into its fullness and potential. Paul speaks of a physical place, like somewhere you could live, like a home, when he talks about being in Christ. Being in Christ is someone, some place that you can walk about in. It's like he's adapting Jesus' own teaching when Jesus stood up and said, I am the way and the truth and the life. Jesus had no way was presenting himself and his work on the cross and his resurrection as the entrance to the faith, but the entirety. The way, the truth, and the life, everything that's needed for that kind of continual growth is in Christ, according to the Apostle Paul. Christ is what brings you from spiritual death to spiritual life. Christ is what brings you from spiritual infancy to spiritual maturity. And to repeat what I said last week is that we need more of Christ to mature in Christ. It's not that we need other, but we need him. And so to build upon that theme, what I want to do today is share two points. Because I think there's really two key ideas here in this short passage. Number one, receive him. And number two, walk in him. Receive him, walk in him. See, if you want spiritual life and spiritual life to the full, you must receive him. But if you want fullness of life, abundant life, you must walk in him. There are so many who are searching for answers to the crazy world that we inhabit and Paul is saying all of the mysteries, all of the treasure, all of the riches of knowledge and understanding, everything that's needed for nutrients, everything that produces growth is found in Jesus. So receive him. Here's verse six again. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Rooted and built up in him, established in the faith just as you were taught abounding in thanksgiving. To receive Christ Jesus the Lord is um, 
It's not merely to say a sinner's prayer and to feel that your conscience is less burdened. Now, that certainly can be involved in receiving Jesus. But what Paul has in mind here is when you receive him, it means that you then belong to him. It means that you, your whole life has shifted. New life, a new family. It means a new home, a new love, new goals. It means a new plan for all of you as you are and for all of the life that you live. You belong to someone who is anchoring your whole existence and was even before you acknowledged him. Receiving him means you're belonging to him. This is the truth attested all throughout the New Testament. If you look at John chapter 1, of course, in verse 12, it says, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. It's belonging to the new family of Jesus when you receive him. Or look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, right? Um, If anyone is in Christ, anyone's in the conservatory, they are a new creation. The old has passed away and behold, the new has come. Or what about this letter that we're reading right now? Colossians chapter 1. Verses 13, it says, right? For he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Complete change. I was here, now I am here. I was not part of the family, now I am part of the family. I was old, dead even. Now I'm alive, new creation. To receive him means a fundamental change in who we are and to whom we belong. And now that's, that's sort of the rich sort of under, underwork of, of receiving. But, but actually the most interesting phrase here is Christ Jesus the Lord, which might sound very normal to you, but that construction in that order is the only time in the New Testament it's used. So of all the language about Jesus as the Christ, Jesus as the Lord, Jesus, the name of Jesus, this is the only one that's sequenced in this way. And it seems to highlight there's something in Paul's mind that he's trying to stamp here in its total form, especially considering all of the first chapter in terms of what he laid out about who Jesus is as the king of all creation, the firstborn who he is as the king of all redemption, as the one who's come from the dead and who's made peace by the blood of his cross. There's so much that he said about Jesus and somehow he's trying to capture it in Christ Jesus, the Lord. But in order to stand the whole, I think we need to look at the parts. So what does it mean to receive Christ in Christ Jesus, the Lord? Christ is that biblical word for Messiah. And so to receive Christ Jesus is to receive the anointed one, the one that was long awaited to deliver God's people, to be the king and ruler that all throughout history have hoped for, who would rule and lead with such integrity and such peace and such justice and such goodness that everything under his authority would flourish and find blessing. Jesus is said to be the Christ, the one who would 
be the deliverer of the oppressed, the one who would be the bearer of peace, the one who would be the leader in justice, the one who would be the savior from sin. From the very first pages in the book of Genesis, we're promised one who would come and crush the head of the serpent that tempted Adam and Eve. Remember the old story. Jesus is that one who has come as the deliverer to defeat all of the enemies of mankind. Everything that plagues men and women who walk the earth now and who've walked the earth then, Jesus has come as the deliverer completely, such that sin and Satan and death could be completely eradicated. And God's people return to the garden. He is the Christ, the deliverer. So receiving Christ Jesus the Lord means receiving the Messiah. But it also means receiving Christ Jesus, the carpenter's son. Isn't that how people perceived him? Is this not Mary's son, the carpenter boy? Isn't he from some small town out in Nazareth? Jesus was a historical person. God coming into the world in the incarnation, in the flesh. He is the son of God and the son of Mary. He grew up, and the Bible even helps us see that he had siblings. They were not son of God, but somehow they had to deal with him being son of God. And he grew up in obscurity in the northern parts of Israel, in the region of Galilee. And most of his life in ministry was spent serving and teaching the small villages around the Sea of Galilee. But he taught and he healed and he did ministry with such power that his fame spread across the entire land and region. So much so that he became the threat to national security. The, the establishment of the Jewish religion, the oligarchy of the priesthood, as it were, they wanted him off. Is that for me? Yes. Thanks, boss. If I'm getting scratchy, just let me know. I'll take a drink. Um, but they, they, they wanted him done. And so they did it. They were displeased with him. And his own people despised him killed him. And the interesting thing is that all the history books, Christian and non-Christian, agree with that. There was a man in the first century that he taught, gained an incredible following, that there were these weird things happening around him, potentially could be miracles. And yet what the history books cannot agree upon is what happened after the death. The death was certain, but the Christians believed that the resurrection was just as certain. That Jesus was not just a carpenter's son, but he was the cosmic Lord. That in his resurrection, when he got up from the grave, after dying, hanging upon a cross, and being verified dead, Jesus rose to new life. He is the Lord according to what the scriptures teach. 
meaning he is the one with all authority and power, the rightful ruler, the one who has all claim on life, on death, on everything. Paul here says in Colossians that he's above all thrones, all rulers, all dominions, all authorities. He is the one. He's created all things. And then having seen the mess and muck we've made of all things, he stepped into all things and made peace by the blood of his cross, reconciling people to their maker by faith. He is the Lord. And so when Paul says, just as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, it's a loaded term. But I wonder, how is it that you tend to doubt Christ Jesus the Lord? Is there perhaps one of these three names that is more challenging for you to embrace? Think about it this way. I know that those who are committed Christians and those of you who are still exploring the faith have doubts. That the story we've just told and just remembered is one that requires a measure of trust and faith. And so if some of the earliest followers of Jesus, even those who really traveled around with him for three years, had doubts after the resurrection... It's surely not far-fetched to think that some of us here this morning even have doubts about who Jesus is and what he has done. That should be normal and par for the course for us. That, that here on a Sunday morning, there are those who fully embrace and believe, those struggling and fighting to believe, and those who disbelieve the claims of Jesus. That in a gospel community, our small groups on a Tuesday or Wednesday night, there are those who are fully convinced of the, of the resurrection, those who are struggling to believe the claims of Jesus, those who doubt, that should be normal for us. But I wonder, are you prone to doubt the Messiah? Meaning, is Christ the challenging piece for you? This grand story of the unveiling and revealing of God's great plan and mystery, that, that, the, that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob Somehow, God worked through these many generations and through a nation in order to craft a story so that the deliverer that we've all longed for to put the world to rights might come into the world and rescue it. Is that challenging for you to embrace or to rest in? Or perhaps it's not the Messiah, but you find yourself doubting the man. I get, I get the logic of it, right? You know, like I need, sin, Savior, it makes sense to me. But first century, a man walking around? Show me the history books again. Was this real? Did it happen? Is it historical fiction or is it historical fact? Some of us and those who you might talk with about the faith have a wrestle to embrace Jesus the man the one who came from Nazareth and the one who did all of those miracles and taught these great things and who, who died upon a cross. Is Jesus the man challenging for you to embrace? Or perhaps maybe it's Jesus the master. That's easy to doubt. Because the idea of my life coming under and submitting to the master 
this Lord who is truly good and has my good in mind. But yet then some of my own desires seem to run contrary to his desires. And what do I do with a mess where he's asking to do something in one area of my life, but I don't really want to do that. I want to do this in that area of life. And now I've got to come under the lordship, the kingship, the authority of Jesus and submit my own life to his life, my own ways to his ways. Perhaps it's doubting the master that he actually does know what's best and good for me. Where are your doubts? Where are the doubts of others that you know? Paul is eager. He's so excited for us to embrace Christ Jesus the Lord. He wants us to receive him because he knows that the fullness of life is found in him. Right? G- Paul knows that Christ Jesus the Lord contains unfathomable riches for us. He's talked about it throughout this first chapter, that that there's treasures of wisdom and knowledge, that there's one who is good and makes for peace, that there is a kind of love in the family of God that's better than life itself, that there is a surpassing peace in Jesus. He knows what's at stake if we receive him. But have you received him? To receive him is to belong to him. And to receive him is to embrace Christ Jesus, the Lord. That's what it means to be in Christ, in the conservatory of Christ. But before we move on to walking in him, I want you to see sort of the reminders that Paul puts in this this passage. He says, after the, the walking in him part, he says, just as you were taught, and abounding with thanksgiving. Those are crucial, right? Because it means that the church at Colossae had been taught these things about Jesus. And they had been taught not just in the sense of they understand it in terms of cognitive, but they had been taught what it was like to live a life in Christ and to walk with him. And and not only just to sort of teach it and know it, but Paul believes that they've had it explained in such a full and rich measure that that even what we've seen so far, and there's tons more to come in chapter three, and, and even in chapter two, even what we've seen so far should well up like a spring in them, overflowing in thanksgiving and gratitude. That like this deposit that's theirs of the gospel produces a kind of thankfulness and heart and an understanding of how to live life, that they know. And so given that they know, Paul is saying, continue. He's saying, listen, Jesus is not merely the ABCs. He's the A to Z for you, church. He's not the entrance to the faith. He's the entirety of the faith. Not just salvation in Jesus, but Bible words, sanctification, growing more godly is in Jesus. Not just the way in, But the way through the kingdom is Jesus. He's not just the help you need now. Jesus is the home that you were made for always. And why? All the nutrients, all the treasures, all the riches for a gospel greenhouse are in him. Both a new life and fullness of life. Christ. Okay, walk in him. 
Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught. To walk in him means to keep receiving him. Paul does not have in mind here that we receive Jesus once and we're good. No, he has in mind that we keep receiving him, that the goodness of who Jesus is constantly, continually feeds and ministers our soul to continue in him. Or perhaps if you're reading a different translation, it might mean to live in him. It's the idea of walking that's most compelling to me, which is how our translation, the English Standard Version says it. So walk in him. And the reason I like it is because it gets at the, the, the wisdom tradition in Proverbs, which is that a, a way of life or a pattern of life is a walk of life. And so what Paul's getting at here is your life as a whole should be in Christ. You are to walk about in him. Not that you outgrow him, but that your continual, continual growth comes through him. And so the effect, I think, is this. It's like, let Christ and no one else establish your values, your thinking, your identity, your conduct, everything about you and how you operate. Recently, um, through some of my kids' activities, I feel like I've jumped back into the game of, of making, like, parent friends um, at the kids' activity. And I don't know, like, maybe I wasn't in that game for that much over the last couple of years, but it's a whole world to sort of, like, chat on the side while, you know, your child's doing something and make a friend while you're watching. And it's been kind of kind of fun. And so I've been getting to know this other dad. And um, a few weeks ago, we're just sort of, you know, just the facts is the start, right? And then all of a sudden, we're talking a little bit more. There's some common interests. We talk about some music or some food. And um, this a few weeks ago, we swapped um, moving stories. Um, so like places that he had lived and houses that they had bought. And we're just sort of, you know, we're sharing a little bit more of life. And I don't know what it is, but talking about the housing market is so fascinating to me. And um, moving... <laughs> Moving has all of these different factors involved in it. Even in a time when the market is the way it is, where it's like, if you can find anything, you know. Um, but still, there's all the angles, right? In terms of what is the house actually like? What's the neighborhood like? What other things are around it or schools or amenities? And one of the things some would be very concerned with is the walk score, Right? And as I'm talking with this guy, that's actually what he started talking about. He's like, we, we looked at the whole area and we knew we wanted to be somewhere near the lakes. And we had lived in this spot before where within a few blocks radius, we could walk to pretty much everything. You know, there was a coffee shop we could go to. There was a few nice restaurants. There was a grocery store. There was a park. The school was not far. And so this whole idea of having life and a walk score where everything you needed was accessible was a pretty high value for them when they were looking for their current home. And there's something idyllic about it, right? Like that you could be somewhere and then everything that you need in life is just a few steps away. You don't have to drive. You don't have to leave. It's all in the neighborhood. All you need to do is sort of walk about and around it. Can you see where I'm going? Paul did not have Zillow. 
He did not have House Snap. He did not have Edina Realty's app or whatever you would like to use. But I think that when Paul is talking about in Christ, he's talking about a walk score. He is talking about the locale of Jesus as your home has everything you could possibly need or imagine in it. Easily accessible, right there, such that your own life could flourish. Jesus is himself the perfect walk score. You need to not drive anywhere else, go anywhere else. Everything you need is in him, and everything you long for is connected to him. That's what it means when he says, walk in him. It literally could be translated, walk about in him, like you would walk about in a neighborhood. So before we get to these descriptors, rooted, built up, established, I want you to see that this is how we want to do church. The reason that we worship the way that we do on Sundays is because we want to walk about in Christ. That the entirety of the way that we want to gather for worship is such that we would be reassured of the good news that is ours in Christ. The reason we acknowledge sin and confess it is so that we might again see our need for assurance and grace that is in Jesus. The reason that we sort of work our way up towards a much more personal and close, intimate worship song is because we know that Jesus is the place that's truly home for us and that we want to meet with him, hear from him, be changed with him, right? And, and gospel communities function the same way. I don't know if you know this, but like the point of us gathering in a small group, which can include a lot of different things, the main thing, and the reason we've named it as we have, is that the gospel is the main thing that there should be a healthy pattern of people within a community turning from sin or acknowledging where they lack faith and then being refreshed and renewed to trust him again, to place faith in Christ, that we should be talking about what our hope is in, what our trust is in. We should be encouraging one another to believe in Jesus in unique ways, in needed ways. And I want to model that for you in a few minutes here. But the whole purpose of that would be that we are reassured and encouraged to continue to walk in Christ. Bible study is good, yes. But Bible study is not enough, right? We want more than a Bible study. Sharing is good. Caring is good, yes. But we want more than just share and care. We want Christ offered to one another. Because it is he who we need in order to continually grow in the faith. What does rooted here mean? Rooted, built up in him, established in the faith. Rooted, of course, is getting at agricultural metaphors. It's talking about roots within the ground. To take root, to be strengthened with roots. Much of the plant life in Palestine where Jesus lived and Paul was traveling around, right, was significantly threatened by heat or drought. So you've got this special attention in that area of the world that's paid to what's under the soil. Because if the roots are strong, then the plant can weather 
and they, well, they can handle the weather and what's coming its way. When the roots are strong, anchored deep, it guarantees the continued existence of the plant despite the changing conditions of the weather. This is why all throughout the scriptures you have that language that the, the strong roots, the good roots, are like the righteous person. Whereas the, the weak roots, the bad roots, are like the unrighteous person. And the unrighteous person withers under heat and pressure. And the righteous person stays and remains under pressure because the roots go down. And what Paul is saying is when you sink your roots in Christ and you keep them there, they will grow to the point where they can stay and remain whatever you face not only rooted, but established. Change in metaphors. We went from agricultural, now to sort of industrial or to building, construction. Paul has in mind here the idea of people being built together like stones. You see it in other places in the New Testament. In order to form a house, even the building where God himself dwells. What he's saying here is you, as you stay in Christ, get built up, even with others, into a much more solid and secure structure such that God could dwell there and you experience the blessing of his presence always. And then he goes on perhaps to change one more metaphor in established. There's hints this could be legal, right? We could talk about ratifying or confirming a document of some kind. Might be a stretch, but what he could for sure have in mind here is to confirm, to put beyond the shadow of a doubt, to, to establish as true. And so when we walk in Christ, what happens is roots dig deeper. What happens is structure gets built up stronger. And what happens is doubts minimize such that faith grows stronger, confirmed. So that whatever we face in life or whatever other challenges to the good news that we hold so dear, the hope that we have of heaven that Paul lays out, that those would not knock or topple or sweep us away, but that we would remain in Christ. So here's what I want to do. I want to talk you through a simple diagram that for me has been helpful in how I think about going around the block with Jesus. When I am in a conversation with someone, or even as I'm listening to the people in my gospel community, I'm always considering, what is God's design? Or perhaps as someone is sharing a challenge that they're facing at work or in their family life, how is God's design absent? What's missing from the ideal, from the garden, as it were, that God has made and designed us for? What's missing from the greenhouse that Jesus himself creates by his good rule and blessing? I'm thinking about God's design, and then I'm also thinking about how we've left it. Is there some way in which we've, we've departed, or this person, or the person that's treating them a certain way, has left God's own design and intention. Which is to say, we've turned to our own ways. And we've begun to operate in sin rather than in trust. 
We've begun to operate in sin rather than in obedience. And so sin has come and then inevitably brings about a kind of brokenness. This is often what somebody starts sharing. They start sharing the brokenness. And as I hear the stories of brokenness in our lives, either within us personally or that we're facing externally, whether it's at work or whether it's in a relationship or whether it's in society as a whole, and, you, and I see the brokenness, I'm always then considering, how does the good news speak to this? What is it about Jesus, who he is and what he's done, that meets all of the needs of that brokenness in order to heal, transform, and redeem? Because when I start to see, okay, here's how Jesus is sufficient, Here's how he is all the nutrients and all that we need for that area. Now, all of a sudden, you can start to think about, okay, is there a way in which that person needs to turn to repent and to believe, to trust? And when you turn from sin and you trust in Jesus, what happens? You're refreshed in the gospel. You believe again. You receive again. You walk about the block again. And then, of course, the gospel frees you and gives you hope and power to pursue and recover God's original design. Now, this could be in any area of life. It could be in the area of um, finances. It could be in the area of sexuality. It could be in the area of work. It could be in the area of relationship. It could be in many different areas. Without sharing names, because pretty much our whole gospel community was like, yeah, I'm dealing with control. <laughs> like, I want to control things in life. I want to talk about it. Because, well, one, it was helpful to me, and I think it was helpful to us to think about how control, even through this walkabout three circles rotation, could play out. Because, for example, you could see that God's design would be that we we live in a world where God is in control. We live in a world where God is in control and he's set up the world. But, but now we live because of sin in a world where things appear very out of control and where we should have stayed in the garden with a trusting father who could provide for the things we need. Now we live in a broken world where we're not sure we'll get the things we need. We're not sure we get the things we need, and so fear can come into play, sometimes bringing about a kind of um, anxiety, sometimes control, sometimes we'll manipulate to get what we need, or we'll live in, in wonder if we'll ever have what we need, experiencing the loneliness or sadness of that place. And so our experience of brokenness then often leads us into all of these other arrows where in, in, in view of the issue, what seems most fitting is if I could just contain this situation or this person, if I could just fix this so that it would produce the thing that I want, all of a sudden I put it into my hands and started clenching my knuckles tight but I haven't actually made my way any further back to God's design. Still living with the effects of brokenness. And so where the gospel is good news is that, yes, we were made for a garden where everything was supplied to us and we didn't need to go reach for things that were not for us, 
right? We were made for that place, but now we don't live in that place. And yet we still have a God who knows when every single hair falls from your head. We still have a God who says, I care for you so much. Would you cast your anxieties upon me? Just because I love you, I can hold them. We have a God who knows the brokenness of our world so much he entered in, not just as a king, but as a priest, so that he could experience and sympathize with all of our weaknesses, all of our struggles, all of our challenges, and go, I get you, and I've walked through this. And not only have I walked through this victoriously, but now I'm standing at the right hand and praying for you constantly. When you begin to see Jesus as the one who gave up all control, submitting his own life and going to the cross, even though he could have canceled it at any moment, out of love for you, and so that our broken world might one day become whole again, then you go, he is still good. I can trust my life to him. I will walk by faith even when I can't see with my sight. And the gospel has just impacted your area of need and fueled you to walk in a new way, recovering God's design where you trust him to provide for the things that you need. Now, we could do this for so many different areas, but I want you to see is that the Christian life is one where we go round and round and round this thing. Not because we're in some weird cul-de-sac, but because the treasures are still there. Riches beyond measure to meet all of the areas of brokenness we encounter within us and around us so that we might live by faith, turning to trust in Jesus and walk with him. Just as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him rooted, built up, established in him. Receive him, walk in him. That's all Paul is saying is needed for us to live in a kind of greenhouse where we continue to grow and we are anchored in the, in the gospel story, which has a hope of eternity that satisfies us and says, hey, We were made for another world and the brokenness we experience now will one day be done away. And every step that we take by faith to trust the Lord in that direction will be one where we continue to grow and bear fruit in life. So receive him, walk in him. Let's pray that we could do that.